Welcome to The Commentary, a weekly conversation about vision, worship, and life at Grace Presbyterian Church. I'm Mark Bertrand, the pastor of Grace. And I'm your fellow commenter, Cameron Brooks. Hey, Cameron, I'm just wondering, have you heard any good sermons recently? (laughs) Well, today's Monday, uh, so just (laughs) yesterday, in fact, I I heard a sermon by Reverend J. Mark Bertrand. I've heard that guy. It was about hypocrisy though he knows a lot about that (laughs) so it was a fantastic sermon because of that yes yes a lot of firsthand experience that was uh (laughs) matthew 23 jesus denouncing the scribes and pharisees because they don't practice what they preach that, that was a tough one yeah to preach for sure but you did well i i really did enjoy it so i appreciate that um i thought it'd be interesting if we talked a little bit about sermons because you know, we're in a new year and we are, you know, we're, we're getting through Matthew's gospel. Like I, I, I don't want to, I don't want to say, oh, we're going to finish it this year, but I'm pretty sure we are. And so we're making progress in that, but I'm thinking a lot about sermons and I've been having some conversations recently about sermons as well, including one where someone asked this question, uh, whether I thought that being a novelist influenced the way I preach sermons. Mm. And that's a great question. And I have to admit, I think I got a little, um, not hot on the collar, but a little, little sort of like, I, I think I over explained okay. in my response because I, I wanted to insist that there's a firewall between, you know, uh, writing novels, telling stories, that sort of thing, and the sermon. And so, I don't know, I thought it might be interesting to talk about that a little bit and talk about what a sermon really is, why it's different from those things, and, and maybe we have time to talk about how to listen to a sermon, if that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. That's That sounds good. I think, I mean, obviously a sermon takes place within a worship service yeah just about always and so it is a part of worship for everyone there both you the the minister the preacher and those of us in the congregation it's not that worship pauses for a minute because the music is done but it's it's a continuation but we don't always think of it that way so we can come back to that question in a little bit but i'm curious how you responded to that question about being a novelist and and being a preacher. Yeah, so I did, uh, I, I think I, I probably spent the first half of the conversation saying, no, no, they have nothing to do with each other. And and the last thing in the world I'd want you to say is you preach like a novelist. Mm. I, Why? I'm not, I'm not sure what that would be yeah. exactly. But <laughs> I think because in my mind, that would suggest like a, almost like a genre error because the sermon is not storytelling. It's sermon is not uh, a novel. It's not poetry. It's not an essay. It's not a speech. It's not a lecture, any of those things. It is its own thing. And while, you know, common skills and lessons certainly apply in all of those, I, I think it's really important when you're preaching a sermon to approach it differently right from the outset. And whenever I feel like I'm listening to a sermon that is too much like, you know, uh, 
uh, a talk, a TED talk, or too much like a short story or an essay, you know, whatever. Um, I feel like an opportunity has been missed and, and maybe worse, you know, that, that, that a sermon has not been preached. And so because of that, I personally try very hard to keep these things separate. And when I sit down and, and, and I uh, work on a sermon, I am not doing it the way I would do a novel, a story or any of those kinds of things. You know, it, it is a different process it's a different focus. And, and I would say, like, if I had to, you know, sum it up under one thing, for me, it has to do with credit or glory. Hmm. That's if I'm writing a novel, if I'm doing that sort of creative work, it's an expression of myself or it's a, a you know, a demonstration of my abilities or my take on life or whatever it is. And if it turns out well, then I have satisfaction in that, you know, professional satisfaction, whatever. Ego. <laughs> and I never want those kinds of things to attach to a sermon. You know, I don't, I don't want to derive professional satisfaction from the preaching of fine sermons in the way that I would like the writing of, of decent novels. Um, I just think it's it's the wrong way of approaching what a sermon is. In a similar way to how, as a musician, you know, a lot of musicians in worship will go out of their way to avoid the trappings of performance, uh, to to make it clear that it's not like a concert. Um, I feel like I'm doing something similar, and for similar reasons. Hmm. Yeah, I resonate with that. It's, I mean, there are certain worship musicians mm -hmm. who seem to be very good at performing mm -hmm. and, and they're very gifted, very musical and beautiful and all of that, but it can be difficult to discern what's going on when right. you're experiencing it yourself. You're like, ah, like, this is really good, but yeah, what's ha like, what's happening? <laughs> yeah. this, this isn't very different from like a concert I could go to. Exactly. I mean, you know, you have put albums out and you have done concerts and I could go to a concert and I could see you and hear you performing songs that you had written, but that would be different and you would do it differently than you would leading worship in a worship service. And that's the point I'm making that like, if you went to, you know, some like a book reading or something and, uh, you know, I'll daydream a little bit. You know, it's like yeah. you, you went to some book festival and, and you saw me up on stage reading an excerpt from my latest novel. Um, that would be a different thing than attending church and, and being there when I'm preaching a sermon. I, I want it to be a different thing. I hope mm -hmm. that it's a different thing mm -hmm. uh, because a sermon is an act of worship, not a performance. So I imagine that this influences both how you prepare the sermon and how you deliver it. Can you talk a little bit about both of those? Yeah. And, and I'm, I'm specifically curious about how, like how you approach preaching as worship. That's a great question because I think, you know, having said all of this stuff, 
I don't, I, I, I'm not claiming that if you were sitting over my shoulder and watching that you would be able to say, oh, I think he's working on a sermon. Right. He's definitely not writing a short story here. Yeah. You know, that, that's not a fictional creasing of the brow. That's definitely <laughs> worship. Um, yeah. Sure, like a, a lot of the processes look similar, right? If you're, you're going to preach a sermon, you're going to start by studying the text. You know, you're going to kind of get into the original languages. You're going to think through uh, what is the meaning of this. You're going to process it. You'll probably read some other commentaries on it. And you will prayerfully uh, try to distill the meaning of the text, reflect on that, and then come to an understanding of how the congregation might need to hear it or benefit from it. Right. And all of that process has, you know, analogs in how you would prepare a speech of any kind, you know, or, or, or a lesson for a classroom, mm -hmm. something like that. So it's not a different set of skills entirely as much as it is a different intention, right? We sing songs in worship. We don't use different notes than they use in, in secular music or something. You know, it's the same musical notes, scales, all of that. It's the intent behind it that makes it different. And, 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 you know, the, the disciplining of the ego. So in creative work, you're wanting to express yourself. You're wanting to show, you know, some profound thing that you've thought of, or at least give the impression that you <laughs> think of profound things in a sermon, you know, of course you want to have insights, but, what you want to do first and foremost is is proclaim the text, you know, proclaim the word, not your take on things. So where, you know, I prepare a sermon, I'm spending time trying to understand and be shaped by the text so that I can then pass that on. And hopefully a similar experience will take place for the listeners. And the less of me that is in that finished product, probably the better. I mean, obviously, you know, you always have your own personality that affects things. You always have, you know, the stamp of your experiences and that sort of thing. But in terms of the, the meaning and the insight, you know, you don't need my opinions about stuff. Um, you probably need just the opposite of my my little opinions. Uh, you need what scripture is actually teaching and where that takes you. You know, and so I think that that's a big difference in the process. That um, it's not about sort of my epiphanies. It's about what's what's there, what's in the text, and and trying to bring that out. And so. When I had to answer the question about, you know, novelists preaching sermons, that was one thing eventually that I conceded, that there is one area that I think um, you could see in my sermons that there's, there's some evidence of, of the novel writing background. And I, the way I put it was it's in um, psychology, that a novelist thinks a lot about human motivation and... I think when I'm preaching a text, 
the layers that I'm trying to think through are often those layers of motivation. So, you know, going through uh, Matthew 22 recently, and we have groups of adversaries posing trick questions to Jesus and then Jesus turning it back on them. If you go back and listen to my sermons, there's probably more, um, you see, I'm thinking, trying to think through more like the, the psychological dynamics going on here. What, what's at stake in these exchanges? What's the mindset of the people? What are their sort of hopes and, mm-hmm. and, and how do those connect to our own understandings and misunderstandings? Right. And so that probably is a skill that was honed in, you know, novel writing, mm-hmm. uh, in literature, let's say. And it does color the way that I present a text, but I hope it does that in a way that's faithful and and just is helping me bring something out that is actually there. Mm -hmm. Yeah. This is somewhat of a side note, I guess, but I'm, I'm thinking about a famous line from T.S. Eliot where he, he believes something similar about, creative work or at least his own creative Mm -hmm. work he he thought that to write a good poem you had to absorb your tradition and the the past and all of the people who wrote before you read it study it and then kind of extinguish your own personality let that overtake you override your thoughts and emotions so that you become essentially a conduit of of the tradition. And then when you sit down to write, what comes out is this unique mix of all the stuff that went before you. And, and here it is. And I think it's actually kind of a, a a wacky idea. And in some ways, I, I I know what he was getting at, but I'm hearing kind of something like that. What you're saying is it's less about the expression of personality. I mean, it's not that at all, really. Mm -hmm. It's, it's about letting the text speak through you. Right. Because I think, you know, the expression of personality is going to be there regardless. Yeah. And so the question is like where to invest the effort. Mm -hmm. So if, if I spend all my effort in a sermon, you know, on funny stories, on, you know, witticisms that, that will um, reveal, you know, interesting shades of my personality or something. um, I feel like, yeah, that's all stuff that's probably going to happen anyway and doesn't need to be cultivated. Right. What needs to be cultivated is is the thing that won't be there naturally, you know, that, that needs the work. When you describe what Eliot says, to me, that sounds a lot like what we might think of as like channeling, mm-hmm. you know, or a lot like uh, the idea, certainly being the 20th century, that, um, you know, literature is not great men putting pen to paper, it's sort of, you know, individuals channeling the spirit of their times. You know, the culture writes the text and the author just happens to be the penman or something like that. Um, And I do think it is helpful, even on the practical level, because when you're writing a sermon, you kind of want to do a lot of that research and that, that like objective work as early as possible and then do the the work of bringing it all together as late as possible. And I don't I'm not always good at this, but in an ideal world, you know, I would begin the week with all of my 
you know, good textual analysis and commentaries read and, 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 you know, understanding accomplished so that what I was working on was distilling like what needs to be said, how to convey what needs to be conveyed as, as effectively as possible. And so when that works for me, you know, when on a, a Saturday, you know, late afternoon, I finally feel like this outline is, is together. If it, all it does is sort of track with my preparation or my research, I always feel like that's, you know, ah, yeah, it didn't, I didn't do my job. It's when I can see, oh yes, a lot was left on the table, but what's here is what should be here. That's when I feel great. And that's preparation. I mean, I think there is a whole other realm, which is the realm of the actual preaching of the sermon. And, and, you know, I've, I've joked about this before, but, but I constantly feel, you know, early on a Sunday morning before church that last week's sermon was good in spite of me. And I'm really sad that this week is going to be so bad. And then it just repeats over and over again. And, you know, and I, I attribute that to the intervention of the Holy Spirit that, that I, like in a really practical way, can look back on what I've done to, to, to make this happen and realize that, that it was not that, that, uh, that made it in a way that like, you know, if I, if I read a, a novel a story or whatever that I've written, I'm like, Oh, that was good. I'm like, Oh, I pat myself on the back. When I, you know, hear from someone that a sermon was good or I listen to the recording or something and realize, Oh, that, okay. Yeah, that does make sense. Um, that it's a different feeling. Like I don't feel like congratulating myself. I feel like saying, thank you, Lord, for saving that sermon from what it would have been otherwise. Hmm. And so, you know, like I say that that's, that maybe touches on the the fact that that a sermon is an act of worship too, because it's without that work of the spirit, um, it's just you know dross on the pages of your outline. Well, you do preach from an outline, mm-hmm. right? And obviously, some preachers go from pure memory; others right. read their sermons verbatim. Do you think that has any effect on the the quality of the worship or or the not the performance but the yeah. delivery of the sermon? I do think it has an effect, and and I th- I think maybe the way I would quantify it is, um, not the quality of the worship because in my experience, that's much more of a spirit thing, mm-hmm. and you know I have worshipped well at the delivery of bad sermons. You know, I've, I have listened to many bad sermons that have moved me and, and made an impact on me. And, and so like in the same way that, you know, sometimes if you're a, a trained musician, there is stuff that is musically inferior and yet deeply meaningful to you. You know, it's that same kind of thing where you realize there is more to this than technical proficiency. But having said that, I, I do think every, every preacher of sermons has to discover 
like a, a, a way of preparation and delivery that works for him. And I have done it many different ways. So if you look at what I do right now, I have, I would think pretty detailed outlines and they are, they're not manuscripts, but there are points that are basically like a manuscript. And they're, they're the areas where I've worked out just how I think something should be said or, or what have you. And, um, and oftentimes I will have thought about how it might be remembered. You know, that, that I, this is, I want people to remember this. I want them to be able to, to say this back to me. Like if, if you ask me afterwards, like what was that sermon about? This is what I want them to be able to say. And so I'll think about, well, how will you phrase that? Um, I have found too, that as I've tried to be disciplined about sort of the length of a sermon within the overall service, you know, because there's a lot of things happening in the service, not just the sermon, uh, that I need to have a more detailed outline. Otherwise I will take longer to say what I have to say. So ironically, uh, the more of an outline, the more likely that sermon is to end on time, you know? And, and, uh, you know, so I started by preaching from very, very, rough notes. And I actually recently found the Bible that, that I was using during that period. And it just had these thin little slips of paper inside of it that I was looking at and realizing this, this sheet of paper, which is, you know, like, like a five paper is half filled with words. And that (laughs) was the outline to a, you know, 45 minute sermon and I, it's astonishing, right? Well, for one thing, looking at those notes, I could never preach that sermon again because I have no idea what was going on with that. But, uh, and of course, you know, I've done it without any notes at all uh, if I had to. But, but for me, having a really detailed outline has helped. Other people, a manuscript is really helpful. Um, I think that is probably the best way to they have like a really densely packed kind of sermon. Uh, if you listen to my sermon recordings, at least when I listen to them, I hear a lot of repetition. You know, I, like I do the thing, I, I think of it as Hebrew poetry, <laughs> you know, like you say the same thing two different ways yeah. and I'll do this, that same thing. That's like a oral style, I guess, as I'm trying to build a thought or something and I'll kind of try to lead you along to it as it sort of builds in stages um, if I were writing it out, like as a manuscript, that would actually drive me nuts. Yeah. And you know, I, if I were writing it out, I would never say anything directly, you know, it would all be inference and, and symbolism and that sort of thing. So, um, so yeah, I mean, I, I, I believe there's a place for all of those different methods, but none of them really make a difference in the context of worship, right? Because it's, it's when the sermon is preached that that act of worship takes place, I think for, for the preacher and for the congregation. Um, and, and, you know, that's worth thinking about before we're done here, because, um, you will see people sitting in church 
taking notes on a sermon the way you might take notes on a lecture. You know, we have a page in the order of worship that says notes Mm -hmm. for taking notes. And, and that's totally appropriate. Um, at the same time though, it's not just a lecture, right? The point of the sermon isn't to educate you about the meaning of the passage. The point of the sermon is not to, to give you insights into the difficulties of the Greek or, you know, whatever it is, uh, all of that might be part of it, but ultimately the, the, the goal of the sermon is to have that sort of that time of spoken discourse in which you meditate on and reflect on the word in such a way that you can behold and cherish the cross of Christ. And it's that beholding and cherishing that is the point, not learning. And so, although you may learn something, you may, you know, have a sort of intellectual epiphany or something like that, if you've managed to get through the sermon and have not beheld and cherished Christ, that probably wasn't a sermon. That was just a talk. Or my heart wasn't in the right place. That's and, yeah, and, you know, right. and, and that got in the way because I, I certainly know from experience that my own heart posture impacts how I experience a sermon on a Sunday morning. And it's those weeks where I, by God's grace, have a posture of faith and openness and receptivity to the word where it matters less. The new stuff that I've learned matters right. a lot more that I've seen and beheld and enjoyed the cross like you just said Mm -hmm. but yeah i'm i'm glad we're talking about the congregational side too because our episode last week was on the orders of worship right and one thing that i love about the order of worship is it helps remind us that we are participants in worship we have we have responsibilities you know when it comes to this thing we're not just here for the show and and that actually pertains to the sermon amazingly because sometimes as an introvert i kind of like the sermon to just sit back and (laughs) and as an you know as a more academic minded person i like to just sit back and listen and think about ideas and sip on coffee yeah and and i guess that's all good and fine so long as my heart is is open to trusting in the gospel that's being proclaimed to me and and really like, you know, biting into this thing, not just sitting back to and, and questioning or zoning out and thinking about other things. So yeah. Yeah. I guess for me, that's, that's what it's meant to, to worship is to, as soon as the word is being proclaimed, just sit and listen in a posture of faith and wait, yeah. wait Listen for what God has to say. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it, in the second Helvetic confession, there's a statement about how the, the word of God preached faithfully is God's word. Yeah. You know, that, that we're not there to hear a dude on stage, give us his opinion about the word that we're there to hear God speak. And this is a process through which he speaks, just like he speaks through the, the singing and prayers and the means of grace, you know, that, that it's, it's really important to see that it's a spiritual thing, not just an intellectual thing. Mm-hmm. Now you touched on this, but we all have our little pet peeves, you know, terminology wise, um, you know, a lot of people uh, hate it when someone uses the word worship as a synonym for music. 
yeah. as if, you know, just the singing was the worship and now it's time for the sermon or something. Yeah. But you touched on one of mine and that's when you refer to the congregation as the audience. Oh yeah. You know, you'll hear people do that, you know, like, like what's the active thing is what's happening up front. And then the audience is watching it. Mm-hmm. You know, they are not participating. They're just sort of observing and that's not a worship service. You know, there are no observers. There are no um, audience members. There are worshipers and participants. And so that's, I think, more clear when we're singing together or when we're responding verbally to what's being said to us. It's less clear when we're sitting and listening. Mm-hmm. I think the sermon is probably the part of the worship service where people are are most likely to think of their role as passive. I'm just listening. And yet what we're called upon to do there is active, you know, active listening, like, like prayerful meditation, consideration. And, you know, if, if you are just sitting through a sermon passively, uh, you're not really getting out of that time what uh, a sermon is all about. And so, you know, a lot of times when, when we talk about you know, how to listen to a sermon, the answers are often the same answers as like how to be a good student. You know, people say, well, you should take good notes, you know, make a note of the outline and, and things like that. And, you know, that's great. But ultimately, you know, how to listen to a sermon is to listen prayerfully, you know, it's to listen in a state of worship, listening for God to speak, not um, being either bored or entertained by what is being said from behind the pulpit. Yeah, that's helpful. I, I think one last thing that comes to mind is I know that I have worshiped by actively listening to a sermon when I shortly thereafter approach the communion table with even greater joy because the sermon is also a preparation for the worship to come. It's Mm -hmm. a, it's an act of worship of course, but I think you do such a great job of pointing out how the gospel proclaimed in the sermon is also getting us ready to commune with Christ at the table. Yeah. And, and that connection, that link is really powerful and sometimes it's lost on me, of course, mm-hmm. you know, it's not, it's not always there in my own heart is what I'm saying. But, but the, the weeks that it is there, I just am so overjoyed and worshipful, frankly. Yeah. You know, I mean, all worship is dialogical. Yeah. You know, there's that back and forth conversation, God speaks, we answer, but there are practical moments in a service. I feel like where that really becomes apparent. And for me, one of those is in that, that transition from the sermon to the confession of faith and then to the communion liturgy, especially when it happens the way it did at our Friday night presbytery service or at our, our, our service last Sunday, where uh, the person preaching is not the same person who's leading the confession of faith mm-hmm. because that handoff fits really well with, with, with that dialogical idea, you know, so, at that presbytery worship service, uh, Brock Larson preached the sermon. And then as he prayed, I went to the communion table. So 
he's just proclaimed the word, right? That's voice of God speaking to us. And now I'm leading the confession of faith. And I'm basically saying to the congregation, you heard what he said. Now, what do you say to that? And the answer is confession of faith. And so in that moment, you get that back and forth. And for me, it's really nice to realize that, you know, the sermon leads into the confession of faith, which leads into leads us to the communion table, you know, and, and that all of that together is the ministry of word and sacrament, not just, you know, the sermon. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Pastor Mark, thank you for this episode, of course, but also for your sermons, your many sermons. It has you know, been a privilege to sit under them for years at Grace and um, looking forward to next week already. Well, fantastic. Thank you. Thanks for listening to The Commentary. If you've enjoyed this episode, you can rate us on your favorite podcast app and share episodes with your friends on social media. And you can subscribe to The Commentary on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Stitcher. To find out more about us online, visit graceforsufalls.org.